0: are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. My name is Isha and I'm your host. Today we have Ernesto Seymann, who's a professor in Norway, who's originally from Argentina. He's going to talk about Juan Peron, Peronismo and how the populist movements in Argentina was shaped by these features. Thank you for joining us. Before we start, can you tell a little bit about yourself and how you started, what you study, and what you wrote your book about?
1: I'm a historian, Mm -hmm. uh, originally from Argentina, who spent some 20 years in the U.S. and moved one year ago to Bergen, Norway. I'm a professor of Latin American history at the University of Bergen, where I teach Mostly modern Latin America, U.S. foreign policy to Latin America, Latin American populism in general, particularly in Argentina, and specifically the case of uh, Argentine Peronism, which I guess we will uh, talk about.
0: And your last book is called Ambassadors of the Working Class, right?
1: My last book is uh, called Ambassadors of the Working Class. um, It's my first academic book. I'm a a writer. I have written nonfiction and fiction before that. And hopefully, we'll keep writing fiction. But my first academic book and my last one overall is Ambassadors of the Working Class that came out with uh, Duke University Press in last year. Yeah.
0: So so, since we're talking about heroism. Let's go back to a little before the time of Juan Perón. Around the 1900s, um, let's start with Argentina around 1900s. What was happening to the working class there? And who who were like the major owners of industry?
1: I would say Argentina lives like the rest of Latin America, maybe a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit bigger. The The emergence of the working class urban working classes during, basically during the turn of the century, starting the 1880s and 1890s, the Argentine working class is basically made up of immigrants from either the countryside of Argentina. Uh, to the main urban centers, particularly Buenos Aires, uh, but also uh, other smaller uh, urban centers like Rosario, and immigrants from other countries, Europe in general, Spain and Italy in particular. Argentina is a country of immigrants, uh, or, or so the people describe uh, Argentina as such in terms of numbers. Proportionally, uh, maybe a similar experience to the one that the U.S. goes through. It's very Uh, common, the history of uh, families who left um, Europe, Italy, or or, uh, Spain or Ireland at the turn of the century with parts of the families going to the United States or New York and Chicago uh, or Canada, and um, parts of the family going to, to Argentina and becoming members of the national uh, working classes in their respective countries and and, and embracing different uh, trajectories. The, there's a historian, Daniel James, which is the most probably prominent US historian uh, about working about the Peronism, who is writing now a history of uh, Berisso, which is the first center of uh, urban working classes in Argentina and he's following the trajectory of these families that arrived there and he sees a lot of uh, of the workers that were working in the in the art the earlier versions of argentine factories intense uh, correspondence with their siblings and brothers and sisters and, and relatives living the same experiences in chicago in new york in montreal and those experiences are basically also similar maybe uh, uh, in the US on a larger scale and a little bit earlier, going uh, from small factories with intensive labor and not so much uh, capital, leaving a huge transformation in a matter of a few decades, Towards what we know now as industrialization, right? Uh, yeah. With the arrival of the assembly line and the massive influx of uh, workers and intensive capital investment, that that drastically changes the way people work, but also the way factories produce and the way we consume, changes society uh, radically,
0: right? Exactly. So right. Around the nineteen twenties, like income inequality in Argentina was very bad, right?
1: Uh yes and no. Yes, in the in the sense that at that time, mostly f- coming from immigrants, but not not only, uh, socialists and anarchists and communist ideas are going to pose. Different versions of the question that you just asked, whether the the fruits of uh, this massive change in the way we produce and the massive wealth that these factories are producing are being distributed equally, and they are being no. Of course, capital is taking the bulk of it. Yet, when you compare inequality in Argentina, even in the 20s and 30s with the rest of Latin America, and in many cases with the United States, inequality is significant, but less than in these places. Uh, which is interesting when we go to talk about peronism. the way peronism denounces the past as a past of inequality and as a past of exclusion is both a reality, but also strong and very effective rhetorical effect, creating a new political situation in which the past, which in comparative terms was not so bad vis-a-vis the rest of Latin America, is perceived as, as, as a really unequal situation that can be subverted by, by the action, collective action and, and, and organized labor, right?
0: Yep. Yeah. Okay. So in the 1930s, there was a coup and Juan Perón had a role, like he, he kind of emerged onto the national stage. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, so Juan Perón is a member of the army with nationalistic ideas as as pretty much the bunch of the Argentine army at that time, inspired uh, flirting with fascistic ideas from Europe and also in relation to Europe concern with this big issue of the social question what to do with the masses and those uh, people that were becoming part not only of the economy but also of the of the national politics the military coup of the 1930s is the first one after universal suffrage is enforced in Argentina. Uh, in 1916, the Radical Party comes to, to power and is in power until 1930s, when an alliance of different sectors of the military, led by nationalistic groups, basically overthrew the first popular uh, government of Hipólito Yrigoyen after 14 years in power. Perón plays a very minor role In that military coup, uh, is a a sympathizer of of the nationalistic groups that are part of it. There's a famous picture of him on the side of a car that is going towards the government house. He doesn't get any any position in the new government and is not a relevant player, militarily or politically. That coup set in motion what is called in Argentina la década infame, the infamous decade which is actually some 13 years of uh, fraudulent governments, sort of a restricted form of democracy in which conservative sectors of the traditional parties plus the military uh, are in a coalition and and in power until 1943. In 1943, the new military coup against these fraudulent governments takes place in Argentina. This one Called National Revolution, Revolution Nacional, is a much more clearly nationalistic group with a much more clear social uh, agenda, which is going to denounce in big terms uh, the the corruption of the oligarchy, the exclusion. Of uh, workers uh, in general. And in this one, Perón plays a more significant role. He's a member of the Grupo de Oficiales Unidos, a group of United Officers, which is a group of nationalistic uh, members of the military, some of them, many of them, with fascistic and or Nazi uh, sympathies. And Perón is a member of that, probably uh, one of the most uh, pragmatic ones. And his life, and now we know the life of Argentina, uh, actually changes drastically right after that. The few years that go between 1943, when they get to power to 1945, are going to turn him into probably the most significant figure.
0: What were the reforms they did between 1943 and 45, and how did he get in power?
1: If you want to put together his personal story with with the changes that they implemented, basically, the government gave him minor office in the administration, one that nobody seriously thought as a significant one in terms of the impact of the public policies and in terms of the resources that he had in order to implement changes, which is the Secretary of Labor. It is a moment, Phil, in which the idea that labor can in many ways play a significant role in politics and the idea that from the government you can actually play a significant role in organizing unions and in promoting a workers' organization was still not clear. It becomes a reality during these two years. And the reforms are basically... In many ways, part of what we know now as, a, as, a, as an entire project, part of what is the welfare state. In these two years, in particular, the emphasis uh, of the Secretary of Labor is going to be put on organizing unions, on the one hand, in exchanging from the government benefits to some uh, unions in exchange of political loyalty, and exchanging rights and benefits for the workers and the members of these unions in exchange of political loyalty, changes that are going to affect uh, positively workers' lives in ways workers had not lived in Argentina before and in ways that are going to change their life for generations to come. Many of these changes are uh, simply the enforcement of all all legislations that were there but they were not implemented, limits in uh, eight hours a day, working hours, vacations, things like that, plus new legislation that that was uh, implemented during these two years, the extra payment for one one famous one, uh, double payment for those working the night shift among the bread makers, for example, maternity leave, the expansion of, uh, of vacations, the extra payment, the two extra payments uh, at the half year and at the end of the year, called uh, the the aguinaldo. The regulations in working conditions at the shop floor, and the role of unions in increasing the the, the bargaining power of unions vis-à-vis uh, the the companies. Thinking in this sort of a corporate corporatist idea of society in which uh, the government, in this case Perón uh, as part of it, is going to regulate the excesses of capital and labor in order to avoid uh, the the rise of radicalism.
0: Then in, a, in a
1: nutshell, you can see with very different consequences, the ideas of the church in the 1920s, the early ideas of fascism, the early ideas of the New Deal in the United States, and these examples of Peronism a little bit later at the end of the war, as similar nodes in which you can see a strong government as a, a way of regulating the excesses at the ends of labor and capital as the best recipe to avoid extremism.
0: Can you talk about the election and him becoming president?
1: Oh, yep. So basically what happens is uh, with the realization of Perón himself, workers, but also the members of the government and members of the opposition, that actually uh, labor was a significant player, could play a significant political role, and that the Secretary of Labor, Juan Perón, was becoming an incredibly relevant player in Argentine politics, forced his own administration to actually uh, try to limit first to limit his power, uh, which doesn't work. He becomes towards 1945 uh, secretary of labor, secretary of war, and vice president of the of the military government, and then later in in an attempt to actually uh, reconcile the ambitions of the military government with the pressure of the liberal opposition that was demanding the to limit uh, Perón's uh, power. That leads to the arrest of Perón, who is deposed from all his positions in the government and sent to jail in Martin Garcia, an island uh, a few kilometers outside uh, Buenos Aires, in October 1945. What happens there is fascinating, and history changes in, in just a few days. He's sent there, the opposition celebrates that as the end of the proto-fascist government, and start thinking about the re of the old uh, liberal regime. The government start thinking about the transition towards that. Perón himself, in jail, think that he's brief political career is over. He sent a letter from there to Eva Perón, which we, we will become known as Evita. He sent a letter from there on October 14, saying that he loves her so much and that he's talking with his old friend, the president, promising that if he's released, they will retire from politics and they will go to Patagonia and get a small farm and rebuild their life there. That's the perception that he has of his future on October 14th. Three days later, unorganized and also organized sectors of unions and workers throughout the country, but particularly in the working class suburbs of Buenos Aires start marching towards uh, Plaza de Mayo, towards the government house, until a crowd of multitude of workers arrive there. In many cases, uh, you need to try to think in 7 years, perspective, workers coming to a downtown that is the sign after the Champs-Élysées with its uh, French boulevards, uh, workers who have never been in that side of the city, even though it's just a few kilometers from where they work and from where they live, emerging in this area and occupying the main plaza in front of the government house, demanding the release of Iran. That is the moment in which uh, you can say uh, history changes in Argentina. Uh, Perón is, after a whole day of uh, rallies, is released. He gives a very brief speech from the balconies of the government house, the government that had sent him to jail just a few years earlier, a few days earlier, and gives a speech there, talk about his workers for probably the first time to such a large uh, crowd, and starts his political career. Uh, five months later, there's a general election. He creates a sort of a labor party, it's called Partido Laborista, that includes unions and, and some small alliances with those smaller uh, political parties, mostly in the interior, uh, and runs against the opposition of a large liberal coalition supported, uh, coordinated and sponsored by the, the US Embassy, a uh, coalition that includes socialists and communists and radicals and, and conservatives under the slogan of stopping uh, fascism. And he runs against them and, and wins the election from uh, for a decent margin um, and starts his political career. Uh, and, and becomes a president for nine years until nineteen fifty-five.
0: Okay, so now can you explain to us what Peronism exactly is? Because a lot of no, people...
1: <laughs> if I can, if I can do that, I will be running for president or, or, or trying to get a Nobel a Nobel Prize or something like that. Yeah, I can try.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, I I guess Americans don't understand like what is Peronism and. Why do Argentinians see Juan Perón as like a force against U.S. imperialism?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there have to be good reasons for that. But I would say first, Peronism and Perón are different things, and in so many fundamental ways the most dynamic features of Peronism, those that uh, can explain why as a political identity anti-imperialist, but also in terms of expanding and defending social justice and equality. Those features that have become so permanent and are so relevant are not necessarily what Perón had in mind as the main features of his movement. You can think in many fundamental ways that Perón, what Perón had in mind was sort of an updated version of the fascist state with a lot of amendments because this was Latin America, it was not Europe, this was after World War II, not before, with a lot of amendments in that sense, but in, in the sense of a government that can uh, control both capital and labor. And what he had instead is a much more radical process of social, political, and economic democratization in the country that in so many ways he's going to try from then to the moment he died, to contain, to circumscribe, to limit, and never succeed entirely. The democratic dynamics that he sets in motion in these two years that that we were just talking about had to do with this, what I was saying, with with this creation of a welfare state and the impact of these dynamics in in social terms, the reduction of, uh, not only the reduction of uh, economic inequality, Uh, Argentina becomes in 1949 one of the less unequal countries in the in the americas uh, but also the radical improvement of living standards for the urban working classes living standards that were not unlike what peron said were not the lowest in the world or the lowest in the country before the peron, peron arrived and were actually significantly good vis-a-vis the rest of the region uh, but that are going to uh, improve much more during his administration. So, not only uh, reducing inequality and improving workers' living standards, but also uh, expanding democratic political rights, not only to the uh, shop floor for workers, but also in terms of the national polity, of which probably the right women to vote is the most significant feature right? uh, That becomes one of the projects that Eva Perón is going to embrace and lead. Uh, Of course, there are movements demanding women's uh, right to vote way before that since the early 20s, but it's only after Perón comes to power that women are able to vote in 1952. And, you know, we always describe that as, as one of the many features of political changes during Peronism. Then when you see the numbers of how many people vote in Argentina, you see a jump from 1946 to 1952 that practically doubles the number of people who vote. The main explaining factor of that is that women, now for the first time, are able to vote. And of course, he does uh, Peronism does this and produces all these transformations with what I call Uh, uh, an authoritarian democratization, a form of authoritarian democratization, in which uh, a strong control of the government imposes limits to to some defining features of liberal democracy, particularly, but not only, freedom of press and and the free actions of uh, political parties. So the two features are going to go hand in hand during during these two years. uh, Peronism as a sort of a clearest and probably most radical example of populism is always going to present itself as part of a binary option of uh, the people against the elites. And of course, it's, a, it's always a, a problematic definition because uh, it, it opens the opportunity to actually put on the side of the elites, either as members of the elites or as, as those uh, supporting the elites, anybody who is uh, in disagreement with the people. Right? But it is within this populist framework that these uh, transformations are, are taking place in Argentina. Along with those that I mentioned are also those related to an incredibly uh, rapid and, and significant expansion of the activity of the government in the economy. Not only because health and education are entirely free, under Pernison, But also because in association with unions, that means the expansion of a huge, vast set of uh, infrastructure in the country that goes from hospitals to union hotels to schools to housing, mostly in, in the main urban centers, but but pretty much throughout the entire country that are going to reshape the way Argentina looks like in those uh, nine years years and and it's going to change that in ways that are going to reverberate uh, for many decades to come in ways that you can actually if, if for, for a reference for americans in ways that you can only compare with with the transformations under the new deal right people of my generation uh went uh, and, and current generations they go on vacations to hotels in the interior of Argentina, beautiful hotels that were created by unions under Perón and that are still there. The idea of vacations as we know it, so this right of workers to actually not only have a time in which they don't have to work, but also that they can enjoy uh, some things previously reserved for some few sectors, it was not only an idea, but also something that was going to be translated into massive investment and deployment of uh, public and, and workers' uh, resources that, that changed daily life in Argentina. From that to, I don't know, a, a measure that was particularly relevant at that time, that the used a lot, but, but worldwide it was used, was caloric intake, right? How much workers uh, and, and populations ate in general. and and Peronism was always proud of showing that caloric intake of Argentine workers was one of the highest, the second highest in the world, not surprisingly, right after the United States. But it was pretty much the same thing. I think the uh, U.S. workers in 1948 had a caloric intake of uh, 3,200 calories, and Argentine workers was uh, 3,100 or something like that. But that gives you an idea of how people were able to to relate these big ideas of what is a social transformation with very concrete experiences in how their own life was changing.
0: Che Guevara once said, passion is needed for any great work. And for revolution, the passion and audacity are required in big doses. And hopefully one day we will have that revolution so that independent media like this can be funded. Unfortunately, that day is not today. We are an independent and uncompromised podcast. We are funded purely through subscriptions. So please become a subscriber. Go to historically.substack.com. On top of the episodes, you will get many newsletters that are very informative, and it's only $5 a month. Go to historically.substack.com. Viva la revolución! But until then, please support us. I do want to talk about this one issue that's controversial in that under Perón, a lot Mm. of Nazi war criminals got sanctuary. Um, How do you reconcile that?
1: That is totally true. How do I reconcile what? Sorry, I interrupted you.
0: Uh, no, no, it's okay. Do, do you want to talk about that part too? Because this is what caused me to invite you onto the show is because of this tension of how to judge Juan Perón. And like, what was his role? Like, what was the CIA's role? And why did he give them sanctuary? Like, what was the benefit? Well,
1: I I, I would say three things in relation to to that. A, uh, like I said before, he is part of, uh, of a group that had Nazi uh, or fascistic uh, sympathies uh, before the end of the world, and those networks are going to be right there. And in so many fundamental ways, we cannot understand Peronism, and we will be making a huge mistake if we understand Peronism only. Uh, or fundamentally uh, with the wishes of this sector, including Perón himself. Uh, Perónism is a dynamic that in so many ways uh, runs differently and against what Perón had in mind in terms of uh, the kind of political movement that he wanted to build. B, the it is absolutely true that members of the Nazi regime came to Argentina during during that time also before that uh, the regime that that they that were on the post was also had also created networks so they they could come to, to Argentina the numbers are certainly less significant than those of uh, Nazi officers coming to the United States if we measure this uh, uh, in in terms of numbers, there's no way to be alarmed about Argentina more than that we can be (laughs) alarmed about the the United States. The the numbers are significantly lower than that. What what you can think also, uh, that doesn't make it less problematic, but we need to put it in the perspective of what happened after World War II, in which when I was talking about prosperity in in Argentina, we're talking about a country that surprisingly and in so many ways had one of the best living standards in the world when you know what was going on in Europe right after the war. It was not surprising, it is not surprising from now, to see that these two countries, Argentina and and the United States, had the resources And the idea of uh, taking advantage of the dismantling of the Nazi regime and trying to use their know-how in so many different ways. Uh, Of course, that is going to be associated with the idea that Perón had indeed some sort of uh, sympathies with fascism in Italy in the 1930s. And some of the members of the government had had some Nazi sympathies uh, as well. I don't see that as playing when you, terrible as it is, I don't see that playing a significant role, if any, in Argentine politics during that period, more than what you can see that in the United States.
0: Oh, absolutely. I was just curious, but like, was there any benefits, to me, you wouldn't want to bring these people in unless they can give some tangible benefits, like, did they? Yeah,
1: well, there was a, a... Sort of a card, a poker game between a bunch of liars. Uh, so I Peron see. was promising a lot of things that never fulfilled and never delivered, and most of the Nazis that came here were exactly the same. In addition to being Nazis, were people trying to get the best out of, out of, their, of their situation and oversold themselves promising things, including a nuclear bomb or, or capacity to build uh, nuclear power and the capacity to build uh, some specific uh, planes that mm. never materialized. In terms of the actual policies that that defined Peronism during those decades, in terms of the social policies, uh, in terms of the economic policies, in terms of the foreign policy, the relation of the United States the, of, of Argentina with Latin America and with, the, and with the United States, you see way more influence from all forms of nationalism in Argentina, Catholic social thought, or the New Deal itself, Perón quotes the New Deal repeatedly, particularly during the first uh, years of his administration, Uh, another Latin American uh, experience more than anything related to, to European fascism.
0: Okay. So, after those nine years, Perón went into exile. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened after his presidency?
1: Yeah. So Perón is overthrown in 1955 by a military regime that after his he's overthrew in, in September, groups of the army in a few months before that are going to bomb uh, the Plaza de Mayo in front of the government house and the government house is itself in the largest massacre, public massacre that took place in Argentine history, in which an uh, we still don't know how many people, but, but hundreds of people, uh, civilians that were just going to work, uh, died. Just to give you an idea of the kind of confrontation that precedes the military coup. And the military coup is going to present itself, along with these features, as a sort of the restoration of the of liberal democracy. And it's going to set in motion an 18-year period in which Peronism is going to be banned. And different attempts to restore democracy excluding Peronism, are going to be attempted and are going to systematically fail. The government, the first military government, is going to lead to one national election that is going to give Argentina a new president, Arturo Frondizi, in 1958, that Peron uh, supports. He's going to be overthrown in 1961, there's a new election in 1962. A new government is going to be elected uh, with Arturo Illia. From the radical party, who is going to last uh, until 1966 when he's overthrown again, and there's a national revolution at that moment. The idea of reaching uh, some form of political stability by excluding the movement that, in fundamental ways, had shaped the life of Argentine workers uh, was a yeah, unsustainable, to put it mildly, but reflected also the difficulties of the national uh, elites to actually see the role that these transformations had in the in the country, right? And, and among and among workers, the template that they had in mind when when thinking about how to get rid of peronism is what the Allies did in Europe after World War Two, right? So we're going to actually get rid and erase from the country the experience and the memory and the history of Peronism. And, and since Peronism was not that, it had actually very little to do with that, that fails systematically during these 18 years in which both uh, Peronism as a political movement, Peron in exile, and the benefits that Peron had uh, or, or the, the changes that Peron had produced in Argentina are not going to disappear. That. Succession of failures are going to are going to lead in 1973 to the return of Peron to power in its most uh, tragic way in uh, three years of uh, extreme political violence uh, in Argentina in which many uh, political sectors from the left, those in Peronism and those uh, outside Peronism are going to embrace the guerrillas. In many cases, inspired by the Cuban revolution, in other cases, just encouraged by the radicalization of political violence in Latin America in general, and also right-wing groups sponsored, tolerated, but sponsored by the government are going to clash during three years until 1976, when the last military coup took place in Argentina, the last and, and by far the bloodiest and, and most violent one, uh, in which some thousand of people disappeared.
0: That was during the Operation Condor years, right?
1: That is that is that is the at the core of the Condor years. Yeah, it, 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 interestingly, just let, let me just add something before I forget that the military coup in 1976, in which thousands of people. Uh, many thousands of people are going to be killed and disappeared, is going to present itself, It's going to conceive itself in the immediate sense as the group that had to get rid of political violence, Marxism, and the guerrilla. But deep, when they start writing their political documents and start thinking why they're doing this and when they have to justify how uh, massive human rights uh, violations are, are taking place in Argentina, they're going to explain this in terms of what Argentina has to do will restore the order and the hierarchies that were lost when Perón came to power in 1945. The The idea of the dictatorship was centrally and explicitly anti-populist. Uh, the idea that anti-populism was going to be able to restore the old order uh, in, in society and then lead the country towards a democracy that is going to be renewed, restricted, and, and moderated. Uh, Latin American dictatorships in many ways, Pinochet uh, uh, in Chile explicitly as well, are going to present themselves as the means, the medium that is going to allow these countries to go from political violence and populism towards liberal democracy, which I think is fascinating when, when we think about anti-populist uh, thinking in, in general, not only in Latin America.
0: Liberalism has, like, I think, a deep contempt towards populism. They like, they believe that the masses are unable to make the best decisions themselves. So, yeah, with
1: with, with the with the addition that in the case of the military dictatorship uh, in Argentina, we see clearly that in in fundamental ways, those reactions and those concerns lead towards much more violence and much more. Uh, tragedy than those that they claim they are trying to prevent in the first place, right?
0: Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, do you have any last comments? Any anything else that I forgot to ask you about?
1: Oh, no, no. Maybe I, I think um, the you guys called me when I just saw the the exchange between President Trump and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I, I just found fascinating that that for the first time I see uh, a, a significant player in U.S. politics like uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez being able to sort out what peronism meant. And, and he, in her ironic answer to Trump's claim that he that she was a vita, instead of defending herself uh, against that she decided to embrace what is one of the most significant legacies of latin american populism not only peronism but all other the movements as well which is those legacies related to social justice and to collective actions as the way Uh, Of fighting for a more inclusive society. This is what I found a tragic misunderstanding of associating a political phenomenon like like Trumpism uh, and President Trump with Latin American populism is problematic, not only in in the sense that it's not correct, but also in the sense that it it conflates under the same label movements that in fundamental ways uh, expand the democracy, uh, were based on collective actions and on ideas of solidarity and equality with movements like those represented by by Trump that, that are exactly the opposite. The core of their identity is based on the dismantling of collective action, the, the priority of property rights over uh, uh, social justice. And so I I, I, I I just found fascinating that, that it's just in a reflex and in a couple of tweets, uh, someone in U.S. polity was able to see all that, uh, sort out what she wanted to say and the kind of thing that she wanted to identi- identify herself with, and define a kind of legacy of Peronism or Evita or Latin American populism that is the one that I think it might be necessary for a progressive political project in the in the United States.
0: Uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, if we're actually doing comparisons, I would say Trump is closer to Pinochet than, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so. Yeah, yeah. I really hate it when um, Americans do the what do you call a horseshoe. Um, but yeah, um, and,
1: and and no, and, and I think it's, uh, it's also I don't think it's an innocent misunderstanding. Oh, okay. Uh, the idea of finding the masses as a problem is also foundational of U.S. democracy, and and we need to deal with that. Uh, so the idea of thinking that you know Jacksonian populism. And it's a terrible uh, racist project that expanded commerce and individual property rights at the cost of millions of lives, overlapping that just because of the name populism, with the experience of what was Latin America and populism, uh, after World War II. I don't, I don't think it's a problem of definitions or a problem of just knowing historical facts. But what I find a very concerning understanding of how mass politics sort of perverts what they, what, what liberal thinking, uh, conceives of how people should behave and should relate to institutions and to, and to social change.
0: That's actually, uh, I actually think you're right. Um, It's probably not innocent. Can you just quickly let our listeners know how to find you on Twitter?
1: Yeah, it's uh, Ernesto Seman. It's uh, it's exactly that. It's uh, at Ernesto, E-R-N-E-S-T-O, Seman, S-E-M-A-N.
0: Oh, oh, by the way, since, uh, since you share the same first name, this is just a completely random question, and I don't know if there's an answer, but what did okay. Che think about <laughs> Juan Perón?
1: That's a fascinating, uh, random, but fascinating question because... Uh,
0: um, I, I just got it because your name is Ernesto, and that's also Che's name, so I was like... Uh, and, so- and
1: my name is, uh, of course, my, my I was born in 1969, uh, two years after Che Guevara was killed, and I was named, of course, after him. And <laughs> my parents were also living Uh, In the late 60s, the experience that Che Guevara lived in the 1940s and that I lived in the 1990s, which is a reflection about what to do with Peronism, right? How to reconcile the legacies of the left with those of Peronism. And Che Guevara uh, actually uh, lives through different understandings of Peronism. He comes from a relatively wealthy family in Argentina strongly opposed uh, against uh, Peronism. Uh, but he's going to see, and, and, and he's going to write about it in his memories, that that he started to realize that not everybody in Argentina talked uh, the same way about Peron, and that people outside his family and outside his social circles were having a, a, a sort of more uh, appreciative understanding of, of his social transformations. Uh, but he's going to come to, to a more sympathetic view Uh, of peronism and of populist politics in his travels to to Latin America, where he's going to see the appeal of populism among workers. And he's going in a a, a sort of a random episode in Peru, in the countryside, some 200 uh, kilometers or 100 miles uh, north of Lima, runs into a group of uh, indigenous workers, that when they know, when they realize that he is Argentine, start asking him questions about Peronism. And, and then he realized that, that that they had some brochures and information about what Peronism means, and that they were fascinated with the kind of transformations that were going on in Argentina and felt inspired about uh, those transformations. And partly because of that, he starts to develop a, a more nuanced understanding of the emancipatory dynamics of Peronism, but... Like Fidel Castro in the 1950s, the experience of how non violent forms of political democratization ended in Latin America are going to lead him more towards political violence than towards populist options. In the case of Che Guevara, that benchmark is going to be Guatemala. When he sees how the peaceful process of, of political and economic democratization led by Jacobo Arbenz and with the first uh, publicly uh, CIA uh, orchestrated military coup in 1945. In 1954, he is in Guatemala City at that time. And actually, he spent some of the time in the Peronist Argentine embassy during that time. Those insights are going to show him the limits of populist reforms. Something similar happens to Fidel Castro in much earlier, when he's 21, in 1948. He's a young leader at the university in Havana, and Peronism contacts him and brings him to Bogota to the creation of the Organization of American States, the, the nine Pan-American conference where Secretary of State Marshall is going to be. And basically, he organizes uh, with Peronism a set of movements of protest against Marshall uh, with the idea of creating a Latin American movement along the Peronist uh, or populist uh, agenda of a nationalistic economic program demanding of uh, the freedom of Puerto Rico, et etc., cetera, et cetera. And he writes to his father uh, in, in April 1948 that things are going so well with the Peronist envoys in Bogotá that he's thinking that after the conference, he might go and spend some few months uh, on, a, on a fellowship of the Argentine government in Buenos Aires. And that changes drastically a few days later when the populist leader in Colombia, Jorge Elías Gaitán, is killed. And that leads to the beginning of the Bogotazo, radical episode of political violence in Colombia that basically gives shape to the nine uh, Pan-American conference. And he sees that, and again, the same way Che is going to see that in 1954 in Guatemala, they see how political process either led by populist leaders like Gaitan in Guatemala and leftist leaders like Arbenz in Gaitan in Colombia, or, or, or leftist leaders like Arbenz in Guatemala are never uh, fully successful and in many ways and in some sort of uh, tragic ways. Seeing these shortcomings are uh, elements that are going to define in so many ways their commitment with, with political violence. For many historians, myself uh, included, the limits, the the imposition of limits to uh, Latin American populist projects is sort of the bedrock of the political violence that is going to sweep uh, Latin America in the 1950s and 60s.
0: And to me, even today, I can see the same limits. I mean, because like with Venezuela, um, the U.S. is trying, this is their fourth coup attempt um, Mm. uh, after Bolivarismo, like, It seems like the capitalistic forces will fight, uh, uh, you know what I mean, will fight till the death.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So it it always ends, uh, or or systematically ends in some sort of a confrontation between liberal promises of slow uh, change through democratic uh, institutions that are never fulfilled and basically and live unfulfilled expectations as the basics of different ways of nonviolent populist projects. Those of the pink tide in the 90s are very different from the populist experience uh, of uh, right after World War II. But that are basically, they have something in common is that they work on an expansive social agenda, uh, with the idea of expanding social, political, and, and economic rights, and that are usually received with a strong opposition, or coordinated or not from abroad, from those liberal sectors that feel that those changes are going to have an impact in the status quo in those societies, which actually, in the case of Latin America in 1959, uh, was a dynamic that, that presented the experience of Cuba as an example, that was not not only inspiring because it was epic, but that it was a viable way to actually enact those changes that people had been trying on more peaceful uh, ways in the in the 20 years uh, before. You can see in fundamental ways that is also an experience that Venezuela uh, went through in the last 20 in the last 20 years. Without the uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not excluding the political responsibilities of what means the change from chavismo to Madurismo and the authoritarian features of Maduro and and his, uh, and his regime during the last years. but I cannot uh, explain those features without seeing the way in which most moderate progressive and successful uh, forms of social inclusion tried in Venezuela in the previous year, in, the, in the previous years. Uh, were well received with the strong opposition uh, and, and sabotage from liberal sectors uh, inside and from the United States from the outside. It's not so different from how to explain the Nicaraguan revolution, right? That it starts... Uh,
0: yeah, the Sandinistas.
1: Exactly. That starts uh, as a very interesting and original promise that is going to combine a revolutionary transformations with some forms of political democratization, only to end up a few years into the revolution in, in having to confront a political and, and military reaction sponsor from the United States that basically over the years is going to uh, strengthen those military factions and, and within the Frente Sandinista, and are going to limit the action and the capabilities of expanding democracy and democratic practices in a country that is pretty much under war for for some ten years, right? So, of course, I, I can I cannot I have to 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 discuss and I have to see the authoritarian features of the evolution of the Sandinismo, the consequences of that, and what are the alternatives to that. But I cannot explain those transformations, the hardening, uh, the failures of the Sandinista Revolution without seeing that as part of a dynamic in which democratic liberalism plays a significant role.
0: Uh, Well, thank you so much. And I'm really glad I I asked you this question at the end because you almost gave our listeners like a tool to understand the world not from from a decolonial perspective because colonization is... Constant and so, and that is actually one of our missions uh, for our podcast. So I really appreciate this, and thank you so much. I hope you can no, come th- again. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you so much. No, no, it, it helped me a lot to, to think about things that that I had in mind, but I hadn't actually put in words. So so, thank you really.
0: And and please do come again.
1: Okay. Yeah. Any anytime you want. Yeah. 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 Please.
0: Okay. Well, have a good rest of the day.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H And thank you for listening to our show.